0: Welcome to this week's podcast from the Cooping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. Uh, If you will, turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to talk about stopping strife this morning. And I think strife is something that happens if you breathe. Some of you didn't get that, and that's Okay. A little slow on the uptake, but we'll get there. And so as we continue our our series uh, through the book of Nehemiah, I want to just kind of cover the challenges that we've talked about so far. Uh, But yeah, this morning, Stopping Strife, Nehemiah 5. In chapter 1, Nehemiah was faced with a personal challenge. When he heard about what was happening in Jerusalem, he sat down and wept and then broke out into prayer. We talked about the importance that when we recognize a problem, that it is our responsibility to go to God in prayer and to pray these things through. In chapter 2, his challenge was political. When the king asked him what he needed, he prayed a popcorn prayer and boldly made his requests. And so we, we talked a lot about in, in number two, uh, chapter 2, uh, we talked about uh, the importance of prayer and, and, and how to, to work out the issue. Chapter 3, we kind of skipped over chapter 3, all those names that we talked about. I was looking back at it. I mean, some of the names, Meshalam and Barakiah. I mean, if any of you want a really good name for a kid, Barakiah. I mean, that's just... Or how about Malkahijah? I mean, Benui, um, Uzai, Tekoiti. I mean, some of these names. Zadok, Shechaniah, Those are all those names, okay? So we kind of skipped over it, but if we talked about it, we talk about right workers in the right place. Chapter 4, he dealt with discouragement. We talked about discouragement last week. And the workers were afraid of the enemies and convinced they couldn't work anymore. Nehemiah rallied the troops to come together under pressure. But as we come to chapter 5, this same community is starting to self-destruct because of festering grievances. And the workers now face a new enemy who is harder to conquer than the previous ones. The timing could not have been worse because the world, the walls were almost done. And Nehemiah has to put down his hard hat and turn his attention from the construction of the wall to the walls that were being put up between his workers. While their external enemies help to rally people, internal conflict threatened to destroy and divide them. And I think that is so often what we have to address is that we can look at the external enemies and we can preach all day on how the enemy wants to come and divide and conquer. But unless we deal with the things on the inside and in our relationships, we will fail every time. You know, I was thinking about strife and, and the way that, that we deal with strife. And I was thinking about the way that, that water buffalo defend their young what they'll do is they'll turn in towards each other and they'll face each other and they'll kick out. But donkeys, unfortunately, do the opposite thing. They will face out and kick each other. It's much easier to conquer and subdue an enemy who attacks us than it is to forgive and restore a friend who hurts us. Psalm 55, 12 and 14 puts it this way. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. It is those who are closest to us who can hurt us the worst. You know, we, in, our, in our series Bait of Satan that we did Wednesday night, and we're, we're doing it for the next five weeks on Wednesday nights, uh, that verse was, it was a paramount verse for it because It's those offenses that are close to home that cause the most strife in our life. And that's what we're going to talk about. So Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to go kind of break it down. Verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to start. And and I've titled this section, Complaints Nehemiah Heard. So in verse 1, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And in verse 5, Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. There's a word in verse one that sets the tone for chapter five, and it's this word, the word against. And that word against is strife. There was strife against their Jewish brothers. Tension was mounting. And I as we look at those complaints in the midst of great work that was happening, it says they raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. This was not just a little disagreement, y'all. This was not just a minor problem. They weren't crying out against the Samaritans or the Ammonites. They were against their own people. And I think this is where we really struggle sometimes, is that we can look at enemies on the outside, but when it comes to, to those closest to us, that's where the largest strife in our, hap- in our life happens. Do you remember when um, Harvey kind of came through Houston a couple years ago? And it, it, I mean, it really just took Houston literally by storm. No pun intended, but there was a pun there. And after the storm, we kind of got a glimpse of the greed of people. Even during during our, our Ice-Mageddon that happened in January, people were selling they're, they're uh, those things that you, you get power from. I can't think of generator. Thank you. Thank you. You're going to you have to help me preach this morning, okay? Those generators, they were selling them for astronomical prices. Price gouging is what it's called. And this is similar to what we see in our text. The city of Jerusalem lies in ruins, and people are powerless to help themselves. Taxes are high, and because of a long drought, there's this bad famine. And most everyone has been working with all their hearts to build their walls. But there are others who, whose alarming acts of greed resulted in widespread poverty and injustice. And there were four different groups who were involved in the community crisis. The first one is in verse 2. People who owned no land but needed food. The population was increasing. The families were growing growing. But there was a famine and the people were hungry. They were working so hard on the wall that they didn't have time to plant or even take care of their own crops. So we have these people. They have no land and now they have no food. The second group is landowners who had mortgaged their properties to buy food. Here this famine is so bad, they're taking their houses and they're getting mortgages on them just so they can afford to buy food. Inflation was on the rise and prices were going higher. and Many had their homes repossessed by the money lenders. So now, not only have they had a home, they mortgaged the home, and now it's repossessed. Kind of sounds like where we are right now in our own economy. I was planning, I'm planning a trip to California to, to see some family in two weeks, and uh, I won't be gone on a Sunday, but I'm going to go for four days, and I was going to fly into L.A. and rent a car. That was my plan. When I looked at the price, now the, the flight to L.A. was really cheap, like 115 bucks, so that's great. Rental car was about $600 for four days. And then when I checked the gas prices in LA, $6.25 a gallon for gas in the city of LA. So when I added it all up, it was cheaper just to buy a flight into Fresno and not have a car for the whole time. Because it was going to cost like $1,500 with rental car, gas, and flights to fly into LA and still have to drive to where my family is. I mean, it's just astronomical. So then we have another group who complained that taxes were too high. Now, I would join this group. Many people were forced to borrow money just to pay their tax bills. Some of us might have to do the same thing in a couple days. I mean, the taxes were, were high. And then this fourth group, there were those who were exploiting others. And we saw that in verse 5. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. The wealthy were making loans with exorbitant interest rates. I did a little research. You know, interest rates on homes are are like bottom right now. I mean, historic lows, which is great. We're buying a house. We close on June 28th. Very thankful for that 2.5 interest rate. I mean, thank you, Jesus. The interest rate. I did some some studying into this. The interest rate on these loans, 37%. 37% is what I found in doing some of the research on what what some of this interest would have been at this time. Families had to choose between starvation and servitude. They had to choose, and and I was playing this through in my mind, okay, Eden, I'm so sorry, you're not going to be able to eat this week unless I give you to Jehoshaphat over here and you're going to become his indentured servant. He'll feed you, he'll take care of you, but you can't live in our house anymore because I can't feed you. Okay, Kai, this week you're gone. I'm going to have to give you away, but they'll feed you. This is how bad it was at this time. And people were exploiting them. When the crops failed because of the famine, the creditors took away their property and sold their children into slavery. See, it wasn't against God's law to, to, to loan money to one another. But they were acting like pawn shop owners. You know, you take your, your wedding ring in and they give you $200, but they turn around and sell it for 1000 I mean, all sorts of stuff was happening at this time. And, and it was against the law of God. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, we see this. Do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. So God had already established, brothers, don't charge each other interest. Don't exploit each other. And that's why in verse 1 it says there was great outcry against two, their Jewish brothers, because it was the family that was exploiting each other. So what does Nehemiah do? Jump down to verse 6. Then I was very angry when I'd heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent, could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us off this usury. Please give back to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are extracting from them. Then they said, we will give it back. And will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I, saw, so I called the priests and took an oath from them. That they would do this according to the promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said. Thus may God shake out every man from his house. And from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Nehemiah had heard these complaints. We read them in the first five verses. And in these verses, we see where he took steps to stop the strife. I want you to notice in verse six, when I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. This lit him up. It wasn't that just that Nehemiah had a short fuse or a bad temper. He had righteous anger. There was something that stirred up on the inside of him that said, we will not continue this as the people of God. We can see it all throughout Scripture. Righteous anger when in Exodus 32, when Moses broke the, the stone tablets, when Jesus was filled with holy rage in Mark 3:5, and He cleared out the temple in Luke 19. And while Nehemiah was very angry, verse 7 says that he took time to ponder the charges before he accused the nobles and officials. And I think this is where we miss it, y'all, is that often... We can get that righteous anger, but then we don't take time to ponder. The New English Bible says it this way. I love this. It says, I mastered my feelings. I think that's a key for us is that we learn that when we get righteous indignation, we don't allow it to become unrighteous through our actions because we don't take time to master our feelings. The Hebrew literally means My heart consulted within me. He took a moment and he looked inside of himself. He took control of his feelings, his emotions. And instead of just going off on the people in the heat of the moment, how many of us have ever done that? Right? We've gone off in the heat of the moment. Nehemiah paused, took a deep breath, and thought about it for a while. Proverbs 16.32 says this, It is better to be slow-tempered than famous. It is better to have self-control than to control an army. After thinking things over, Nehemiah decided to publicly confront those whose selfishness had created the strife. Since it involved the whole nation, it demanded public rebuke and repentance. This rebuke consisted of six different appeals, and I want to talk about them. Number one, he appealed to their love. Nehemiah reminded them that they were robbing their own countrymen, not the Gentiles, not the enemy. He uses the word brother four times in his speech. Psalm 133 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. He appealed to their love. The second thing he did is he reminded them of God's redemptive purpose. While God's people had been redeemed from Egypt and most recently from Babylon, and Nehemiah himself had brought back some of the Jews who were in slavery, their fellow Jews were returning people into bondage just to make money. So he reminded them that God had redeemed them for a purpose, not to just go back to the same issues. How many times do we do that in our lives, is that God redeems us from something, and yet we go right back to the same thing? It looks different. Maybe a different method, but we go right back to the same issue. God had redeemed them from slavery and then we go right back to it. And so He reminded them. He he appealed to them. He reminded them of God's redemptive purpose. His appeal was based on God's Word. Nehemiah calls them on the carpet. What you are doing is not right. As we've already learned, they were going against God's clear commands against usury. Then he says they needed to remember their witness. Israel was to be a light to the nations. But they were being shady, y'all. They were to walk in the fear of the Lord in order to avoid the reproach of their enemies. And because they weren't in right relationship with God, they weren't able to make a positive impact on those around them. Instead of making people thirsty for God, they'd lost their saltiness. They, They were no longer the example of what God's people were supposed to be. He then appealed to his own actions. He talks about, I've I've rescued these people. I've paid, I've loaned them grain and and money. Nehemiah had lent money, but he didn't charge interest. He had integrity when he told the other moneylenders to stop what they were doing. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. And then finally, he appealed to the judgment of God. I love, I love verse 12 because it shows that, what they, that they really wanted to do what was right and didn't have to wait and think about it. They immediately said, we will give it back and we will not demand anything more for them. We will do as you say. Since the brokers promised to obey, Nehemiah made them take an oath in the presence of the priests. This, is a way, this was a way of saying that the promise was not just between the bankers and the builders, but between them and the Lord. Nehemiah then concluded this special business meeting with three actions in verse 13 that lifted up the seriousness of what they decided to do. He shook out his robe, which symbolized what would happen if they broke their vow. God would shake them out. He shook out his robe, and next the congregation responded with a collective, Amen, which was a solemn assent to what had been said. They understood it. You know, that word Amen literally means, so be it. They were saying, if we break our vow, God will shake us out. So be it. And it made the entire assembly part of the decision. Then they praised the Lord in unison. What started as a cry of great outrage led to a confrontation, which led to a commitment to change, and concluded with shouts of praise in a corporate worship service. And This is where I want to head with this message this morning is I want to address how we need to handle strife in our lives by the example that Nehemiah set. Verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from that day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. In describing his own lifestyle during this period, Nehemiah's memoirs tell us of how he behaved. He was motivated by two biblical principles during the twelve years he was the governor in the land of Judah. He was devoted to the great commandment as spelled out later by Jesus in Mark 12, 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Before thinking about how he could make a prophet, Nehemiah considered what was pleasing to God. In verse 15, he describes how previous governors got wealthy at the expense of the people. When comparing himself with what others did, Nehemiah stated, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. In verses 17 and 18, we see that he did not live extravagantly, but instead lived generously by providing meals for others and not using his expense account to do so, because he loved and revered God. He also loved the people he was called to serve. So I want to give you some principles to ponder this morning. Having walked through the brief exposition of this passage, I want to draw these out. The first one is this. There is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. We must be the church before we can build the church. We must care for one another before we can hope to reach this community and this county for Christ. If we cannot treat each other well, how can we ever expect to treat them well? The Bible says they will know us by our love for one another. The second is this, relational problems are inevitable and we can't ignore them. Even though it's painful and it may seem easier to avoid or to deny relational ruptures, we must face conflict head on. If we don't, we'll pay because it will go underground, grow deep roots and bear bitter fruits. God wants us to deal with our relational problems. One of my pastor friends puts it this way. The price or sorry the first price you pay is always the cheapest. The first price you pay is always the cheapest. It's painful to stop strife but it will only get more difficult the longer you wait. The longer you avoid relational issues those deeper roots go and the more bitterness begins to fester and deal with it. Number 3, we must take the initiative to restore relationships whether we want to or not. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. You need to go to them. Be tenacious about this one. If you've been hurt, go and talk it out as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18. If you've hurt someone else, go and confess what you did, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. We're covered either way. If you've been hurt, go to, Ma- go to them. Matthew 18 says this, if your brother offends you, go to them. One, one translation says this, go expediently. I'm going to put it in monopoly terms. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to that jail and deal with the things that are inside of you. We must take initiative. Number four, God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. How could God's reputation be at stake? In John 17, 23, Jesus prayed that lost people would know God's heart of love when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together in complete unity. When we do not walk in unity as the representation of God's kingdom, the world looks and goes, I don't want what they have. They can't even like each other. Why would I want what they have? Let's be like Nehemiah and walk in the fear of the Lord to not only avoid the reproach of unbelievers, but to also make God attractive to those who need Him. We can do that by living in loving community with one another. So here's four action steps for stopping strife. I've come across this week something called how to turn a disagreement into a feud. Okay, these are going to be my, my, my dad jokes. Okay. I wonder how many of us have done these things. I know I have. Here's the first one. Avoid conflict so that your feelings build up and then you explode. Be vague in general when you share your concerns so that the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. Avoid possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. That's often how we deal with strife. I'm right, they're wrong, I'm going to win. So in our remaining minutes this morning, I want to focus on some practical action steps that you and I can take to stop these strife right out of Nehemiah 5. Number one, make sure it's a moral issue. Nehemiah was very angry because of the injustice he saw in verse 6. If you've been wronged and sinned against, your anger is justified. On the other hand, if you're ticked off at someone just because they've done something you don't like, it's not a moral issue. You're just ticked off and in sin. Cut them some slack and give them some grace. Number two, think before speaking. If you've been sinned against, Don't go tell everybody else in town what that person did and how wrong they are and tell it. I'm going to put it in in plain English terms like my Aunt Veda used to say. Shut your mouth and keep your teeth closed. I mean, real simple. Shut your mouth, keep your teeth closed. This is exactly what Nehemiah did. He didn't just go blow up on people. Anger is a gift from God that motivates us to action, but it can just as easily backfire if we let things fly out of our mouths. If you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been offended, keep your teeth closed and think before speaking. Number three, meet face to face. Someone has said confrontation is caring enough about another person to get the conflict on the table and talk about it. Just as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, we are to be direct with the people we have strife with. Nehemiah went right to the source in verse 8 and confronted the people with what they'd done wrong. He didn't avoid it. He didn't go and tell the priests first, hey, I'm going to have a meeting. I'm going to do all these things. He said, no, I'm going directly to the people I have strife with. And we're going to address this thing head on. That's what Matthew 18 says to do. Go expediently. Go quickly. See, when we ignore this crucial step, we often end up talking to someone else about how we've been offended by someone else. When you go to a third party, you create a communication triangle. So go directly to the person you're upset with. If someone comes to you, express anger at another person. Your first question should always be, have you met with them? Have you talked with that person? Have you addressed this? And number four, because we are given the gift of reconciliation, seek resolution. Our goal in stopping, strife, or confronting should never be to convince the other person we're right. If that's the goal of our conversation when we're in conflict, is I'm just going to go and prove to them how wrong they are. That's pride. And pride doth cometh before a fall, and a haughty spirit before the destruction. And that's what will happen in those relationships is they will be left fallen, broken, and destroyed because we've operated in pride and a haughty spirit. Our goal should always be resolution and restoration of the relationship. We shouldn't be set on proving ourselves right and the other person is wrong. We're not to vanquish our brothers and sisters, but to build them up and have the issue resolved so that we can all get back to kingdom work. I can't remember who the president was, but I I remembered the quote. If you come at me with your fists doubled, I think I can promise you that mine will double as fast as yours. But if you come to me and say, let us sit down and take counsel together and if we differ from one another, we will find that we are not so far apart after all, that the points on which we differ are few and the points on which we agree are many, that if we only have the patience and the candor and the desire to get together, we will. When the workers took these steps, the team was able to get back to the job they were commissioned to do. If we allow strife and discord to go on, kingdom work will come to a standstill. If we would follow Nehemiah's example, my guess is that 95% of our relational problems would be solved. If we have an issue with anyone in the church, let's follow these four steps. I'm going to repeat them as I close this morning. Number one, make sure it's moral. Number two, think before speaking. Number three, meet face to face. Number four, seek revolution. Revolution. (laughs) Yes, that's what many of us seek is revolution. Resolution. That was a psychological slip there. There's an old monastery in Germany. And I'm told that you can see two racks of ancient deer antlers permanently interlocked. Apparently, the animals had been fighting fiercely and their horns became so tangled that they could not be disengaged. As a result, both died of hunger. The question this morning is, is anyone here this morning... Tangled up with someone right now? Is there strife in your life, in your home, in your workplace, with someone in the church? Don't let it fester any longer. I love how the people responded to Nehemiah's challenge in verse 13 when it says, the people did as they'd promised. What about you? You're willing to make a promise to stop the strife in your life? Stop the strife in church? Stop the strife in family? Shut your teeth for a little while let God speak to you, and then follow the Bible. Go sort it out with the goal of reconciliation, not revolution. This morning we're going to pray, but before we do that, I I just wanted to mention, and we're going to to take a second offering this morning. We're in the middle of our our vision building 2021, and we haven't talked about this because we've had all sorts of stuff going on, but uh, we handed out these pledge cards all about a month ago. And uh, I want to say to you this morning, it's really not about money. The pledge that, that we're really looking for this morning is that you'll pledge to build the house. Whatever that looks like. If it looks like digging the new, you know, uh, Grand Canyon out front. If it looks like serving in the church, whatever that is. Yes, yes we need finances to accomplish what, what God's called us to do. But it's so much more than that. We want to put the Family Life Center out back, have space for our kids, have space for events, have space for all those things. And, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing about this building is it's paid off. You know, so, so we don't want to be in any more debt. We want to be able to do these things debt free and, and, and expand and have room to grow. Because I know Pastor Anna and Jessica who run kids ministry back there. Whenever kids here on a Sunday, they have to like duct tape them to walls to teach the lesson. Because there's just not enough space. I mean, it's it can be crazy back there. And so so we have those. If you need one of these, there's some at the back. Pastor Susanna can hand some out. Uh, but we want to pray this morning. Nehemiah 2.18 is our verse for this. Let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hands for the good work. We want to pray over this this morning. Then we're going to have some altar ministry and deal with strife in our hearts. But this morning... We're going to take a second offering, and this offering is for the building fund specifically. So I want you to pray, ask the Lord if you're to sow into this this morning, if you're to make that commitment. There's examples. I mean, listen, it's all between you and God. Our finances are are His his responsibility. We trust Him, and He has been so extremely faithful. I mean, the renovations that took place last year, completely debt-free. God is so faithful, y'all. And that's that's what we want to communicate this morning. In, In building the church, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. And so this pledge card, this commitment, it's kind of like what the people did with Nehemiah. They committed to do what God had asked them to do. So Father, this morning, as we prepare our hearts to give, Father, we thank you that you are building the equipping center. This is your church. It's... It's an incredible privilege, God, to be able to, to be an under-shepherd here, God, and to, to follow Your leadership and to help lead Your people. But God, I recognize I can't do it without You. I don't want to do it without You. I'll turn in my credentials, God. I just I want to see Your kingdom expanded in this city. And I believe You've called the Equipping Center to be part of that kingdom expansion. And so, Father, we trust You this morning to do what only You are able to do. Father, we pray over every pledge card that will come in today and over the weeks to come and over all the offerings that will be sown, God, into building Your kingdom through the expression of the equipping center. Father, we pray that each family would experience Your blessing, God. Father, there's a grace on this house for financial miracles. And I pray that every family and every individual who is connected to this house would walk in that grace for financial miracles, God. God, I could testify all day long of every miracle you brought into this house and into our house and into our family. And God, I stand humbled and amazed before you because of your faithfulness. And God, I thank you for that faithfulness transcending every situation, every lack, God. Lord, let it move mountains on behalf of your people. We thank you for the building that will go up behind this building. It will create space, God. We make room for you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've been dealing with strife this morning, if you've got people you need to forgive, if you need to shut your teeth this morning and deal with that, I want you to come. I want to pray for you. If you need a miracle in your body, if you need a breakthrough, whatever it is, I'm going to open the altars in just a second. Before we do that, the greatest message I could ever preach is that of salvation. That Jesus died. He died a bloody death on a cross because He was rich in mercy. And this morning, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you're watching online this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want us to pray a prayer this morning. The prayer isn't what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. But this prayer is an entry point to a life with Him. And I want us to stand this morning. We're going to pray this together. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus this morning, you want to make that decision. If you're watching online, you want to make that decision to follow Jesus this morning. I invite you to pray this with us. Jesus, God rich in mercy, I repent of my sin and I surrender my life to you. This day, I choose to follow you fully, To make you Lord over every area of my life. Let your grace empower me to overcome every sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Or visit www.equippingcenter.us.